This is Mike Flanagan, and you're listening to Compliance Into the Weeds on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to Compliance Into the Weeds on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to Compliance Into the Weeds on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Episode 98 of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, Matt and I take up the Benkowski Memo as it relates to corporate monitors. Matt and I have both written about it, and I think you will find this podcast episode very useful for the compliance practitioner. First, a word about our sponsor, which is the Compliance Masterclass Training, which I'm putting on in New York on November 11th and 12th, 2018. It is hosted by Jonathan Marks at Baker & Tilly. It is unlike any other compliance training. It is not theoretical or analytical underpinnings of the FCPA. It is focused on the operationalizing of compliance, for it is only in the doing of compliance that companies have a real chance of avoiding FCPA liability. If you'd like more information on the Compliance Masterclass, you can check out my website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com, or you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I know you will find it useful. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we're going to take a look at the Benkowski memo, which was announced last week. It covers uh, several areas, but we're going to focus on the new guidelines for the uh, determination of whether one is needed and selection of a corporate monitor in uh, DOJ settlements, specifically around the FCPA. So, Matt, with that introduction, welcome. Hello, Tom. Good to be here. So we had an announcement from the Department of Justice last week, Matt. We have both written about it, and sometimes you pick a topic, sometimes I pick a topic, and sometimes I think the zeitgeist picks a topic. And when we both write on something on the same day, I think that's the zeitgeist talking to us. Um, I think we had a little bit different focus, but uh, why don't we go start with yours, and then maybe I'll give you mine, and we'll see where we come out with. Yeah, sure. So um, I posted about the the Benkowski memo on Sunday afternoon, and I I think first and foremost, just a straightforward announcement of what this new policy actually is. Um, So basically, uh, Assistant Attorney General Brian Benkowski said that uh, he updated the policy for corporate compliance monitors on a Thursday, and then he announced them in a speech that he delivered on a Friday, uh, clearly it meant to downplay or reduce the frequency of the assignment of corporate monitors. And uh, I think that the key point really is one sentence I'll lift from it that uh, was in the policy, not in the speech, but in the policy. Uh, is where a corporation's compliance programs and internal controls are demonstrated to be effective and appropriately resourced at the time of resolution, a monitor will likely not be necessary. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how big of a deal this is going to be for everyone in corporate compliance, because as Brian Pankowski noted in his speech, for over the last five years, we've only seen compliance monitors in about one out of every three FCPA settlements anyways. So it's uh, not necessarily something that happens often, but it happens often enough that I think if you have FCPA trouble and if you know who you are when you're listening here, uh, you might be wondering about a monitor. There are these four prongs uh, basically saying 
you know, did the misconduct happen prior to the current management and the current compliance regime? Uh, if there are problems with internal controls and books and records, have those been rectified? And have we tested those new internal controls to make sure that they are effective so that this problem should not happen again? And if you can answer yes to these questions, then really, I think, you know, we can assume um, that you are not going to get a corporate monitor. And it's uh, not entirely a surprise, given how the Trump administration has talked about FCPA enforcement lately. It is much more about rewarding people coming forward to admit bad conduct in the past and rectifying it now, then you're going to go very easy on them in the future. And uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I do think it's going to become a much more common thing. And this is just one set in a piece that we've seen from the Justice Department lately. So, Matt, I um, have perhaps a little bit different perspective. Uh, first of all, I have worked in a corporation which had a monitor, mm-hmm. and um, the experience from the corporate perspective was uh, disastrous, would probably be about the best thing you could say. Uh, mm-hmm. It was so bad the company ended up pleading guilty to get out of the deferred prosecution agreement, specifically <laughs> because of the monitorship. So um, I've seen it where it didn't work, and uh, the formulation that the Department of Justice uses is something that I think they have been doing informally for some period of time. So there were four basic um, – four uh, different criteria for evaluating the potential benefits listed in the new policy – Uh, You you hit on those, but the underlying misconduct involved um, uh, an inadequate compliance program or internal controls, whether the misconduct was pervasive across the organization or approved and facilitated by senior management, whether the corporation made significant investments in and improvements to the corporate compliance program and internal control system, and whether remedial efforts on the compliance program and internal controls have been tested to demonstrate they would prevent and detect misconduct in the future. And and once again, while I think those were previously um, looked at informally, there's a couple of things in there that really stuck out to me. Uh, The first one was the separation of a compliance program and internal control system. Uh, That's not something typically the Department of Justice had done before. Uh, You and I both write about uh, both of those topics and I think we both believe they're both equally important and they interplay with each other. So I was gratified to, to see that. A second thing was the uh, senior management uh, involvement. Uh, the case that really, to me, started us down this road was Parker Drilling, which is uh, FCPA enforcement action out of Houston, where you actually you had C-suite involvement in the form of the CFO and the general counsel actively involved in the um, nefarious conduct which violated the FCPA, yet the company did not sustain a monitor and did even actually received a discount off the low end of the sentencing guidelines. So um, the the one thing that is not really said in here specifically, but that I have heard uh, probably every lawyer who's been in front of the DOJ and most of the DOJers tell me, in large part, it's about trust. It's about trust that the company is 
either has demonstrated an effective compliance program. That's perhaps verify uh, after trust, but the trust that they're going to engage in and follow the prescriptions of the settlement documents, whether it be a DPA, NPA, or other, uh, in instituting a best practices compliance program. And if that trust exists, uh, that's when I've seen, uh, I think I've seen the DOJ uh, not require a monitor. And this would seem to articulate some of the factors which would lead up to that trust. You know, I, I think a lot of that is true. You know, one point I would want to pick up on, so going back to what you had said about your private sector experience where a corporate monitor drove the whole company crazy, I do not dispute that the corporate monitor system uh, has probably not been as good as it could be or should be. And especially when you see these very large monitorships that financially are very lucrative. And how do they get awarded? They always go to uh, somebody with some deep sort of political connections, such as Louis Free, former director of the FBI. He's made a very lucrative monitor business. John Ashcroft, former attorney general, made a very lucrative business as a monitor. Um, and then Larry Thompson, who was the former deputy attorney general in the Bush administration, who is best friends with uh, Jeff Sessions, the current attorney general, uh, and also is now the monitor for Volkswagen. So those kind of things, those arrangements, they do look bad. And I know that the Benkowski memo does address some changes in how any monitor at all, if assuming one is appointed, how would they be found? How would they be implemented? And I do think that reforms there are a good idea. I'll be honest, I haven't delved into the details of those yet. Um, I know that, you know, Hui Chen, for example, the former compliance counsel at the Justice Department, she wanted to see this whole idea federalized. That was never going to happen. But, you know, maybe putting them out to bid or something like that. In a, so there's a lot to be said that corporate monitorships did need reform. So I'm not opposed to a lot of those reforms. I'm not necessarily even opposed to most of what you just said in the Benkowski memo, if there's sincerity there, if there is trust that can be demonstrated by the company, then I think this is all perfectly fine. Um, I am not opposed to not punishing comp companies with new management, new systems for old misconduct that they had nothing to do with. You know, there is a certain logic to the argument that fining people for conduct they didn't support doesn't make sense. Um, that said, if you take a policy like this and turn it into a cookie cutter that every single company that comes along is not going to get you know, a certain amount of scrutiny to see should they or shouldn't they, like that doesn't serve us any good either. And the, the uncertainty and unease I have with some of these policy pronouncements from the Justice Department is that they can be abused to really defang the need or the attention to good ethics and compliance. I am not saying that Deputy AG Rod Rosenstein or Assistant AG Benkowski, I'm not saying they want to do that, but who knows who might be in the Justice Department in the future and what that person may or may not do and interpret a lot of these policies. They have, if used well, they're very good and reasonable policies. If used um, willy-nilly, they are going to wind up defanging the the, the the purpose of ethics and compliance. And that's the concern I have. We just have to see how that might play out. Uh, I guess in the other thought I had, Matt, was that this actually 
empowers the compliance function and the compliance profession because it lays out the roadmap that a company can take to avoid a monitorship. And it, mm-hmm. I think it adds to the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, specifically around what the department wants to see in terms of a compliance program, building on the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program and the evaluation of corporate compliance uh, programs document released in February of 2017 with uh, this specific uh, language around testing of internal controls and to me demonstrating that both prevent and detect functions are working in an organization. And um, I just think that uh, this really helps companies if they want to avoid a monitor and they're in a situation where uh, they're not going to get a declination because they haven't met the four prongs under the new corporate enforcement policy that uh, they can can work towards these goals and demonstrate these goals uh, to the satisfaction of the line prosecutors and hopefully avoid a monitorship going forward. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think that that is especially clear in the M&A context, uh, which is the source of a lot of FCPA anxiety. And in the past, the M&A deals and inherited liability that you didn't know you had until you found it out the hard way. Like That's been a long and rich source of FCPA enforcement cases and commentary from people like you and me. And so Brian Benkowski in his memo did say one big consideration will be whether the misconduct happened, quote, under different corporate leadership, unquote. So aside from the idea that maybe he's meaning – if it happened with the CEO, did you fire the CEO and you've got a new one? That's different leadership. But I also think that really it gets to M&A deals. Um, and we have seen other F, uh, Justice Department people already this year talk about inherited liability and how the Justice Department does not want FCPA fears to slow down or skewer an M&A deal. Um, so you could, I think, make the interpretation that you go through with an M&A deal. You immediately do some compliance due diligence upon acquisition. You find out there's there are issues. Well, that was under the old management of the subsidiary that you have now acquired, and it's now under new management. You're going to come clean. You're going to immediately roll out your new compliance regime you already have at your company onto the subsidiary. Now you've got the new leadership. Now you've got the new compliance program. Now you can come clean. And now it seems like with this policy on monitors and with the FCPA enforcement policy and everything else we have heard, uh, it is a really clear path that you are not going to be flayed by the uh, by an enforcement action. Um, but all of that is incumbent on the company seriously takes it takes compliance seriously the moment it has the M&A subsidiary done and the deal's closed. The, the, the operation is now in the company's hands. Bang, we roll out compliance the way we want it onto the subsidiary. I think if you're serious about that, then all of this seems to say you're not going to be on the hook for previous FCPA actions that some other business did before you acquired them. That's my read of it, and that's not a bad thing. No, and I guess the, the the what I would draw from that is Matt. It's it's a, just a directly continuation of what was an informal policy, then formalized uh, in the policy announced in July. So once again, I just see this as a, a continuation of things that were already going on. Uh, 
if they meet those four prongs, they sell, they remediate, they integrate, they do a forensic audit, uh, and they self-disclose, and then they stop the conduct, uh, mm-hmm. which is what I think the department really wanted all along. Now, the other thing that does give me some extra pause, and I have to reflect on this further, is this bit about whether remedial improvements to the program and to internal controls, have they been tested to demonstrate they would prevent or detect similar misconduct in the future? Well, okay, sounds great in theory. Um, Who is doing this testing? Who is doing any redesign of internal controls that may be necessary? Um, How much are the board and senior executives being briefed on the internal controls systems that the company does have to try and prevent these abuses? And spoiler alert, I have been working on some other audit-related projects lately where I have seen some really uncomfortable numbers, some surveys about how well does your audit committee have a grasp of internal control and risk management. And there are, there are too many numbers who there would say, well, not really. Um, these are the sort of issues that are going to linger and make me think, you know, how are we going to solve these problems? Who's going to solve them? Um, how will the Justice Department evaluate those internal controls and compliance reforms? Uh, we should make note that the compliance council role that had been filled by Hui Chen, that's gone away. They are not going to replace that role. Uh, They are claiming they will have more compliance expertise. They'll be recruiting for that as they hire federal prosecutors. I'm not really sure how that works in practice, but I can see some questions emerging over how are we really going to get into the comfort zone for effective internal controls. And what happens if you are a two-time offender on books and records? How's that going to look in hindsight? we, We don't really know yet. And I guess on the internal controls, Matt, I was focusing more on the tactical level that you started with, which is who's going to design and then who's going to test those. Are you going to bring in a Jonathan Marks type internal control expert or is it going to be, you know, someone from uh, the compliance regime or a compliance consultant uh, who who is going to uh, really put that in and satisfy the department going forward? One thing we really, neither one of us really focused on, though, was the cost-benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, there uh, is certainly uh, on record one fifty million dollar, fifty million dollar monitorship. That's fifty million in fees in one year. Um, the costs are recognized as uh, very high uh, uh, along the. Um, Jack Kent Cook line of George Allen. I gave him an unlimited budget, and he exceeded it. Um, but how does uh, there's really uh, I don't find enough in here about the cost benefit analysis. I, I, I had focused more on the evaluation of whether a monitorship would have been gone, but I'm not sure uh, how you really focus on the or determine the cost vis-a-vis the benefit. Well, and that's the part that really we see in multiple ways across the Trump administration's regulatory regime is that they always like to talk about the cost and the benefit. Now, the cost is always easy because somebody's going to give you an invoice and you're not going to like the number at the bottom of it. However, the benefits, well, the benefit to whom? Um, You know, you could, for example, say that what if uh, I'm going to deviate from FCPA and wander into data security, but let's imagine for some reason Facebook had a data security compliance monitor in place in 2012 and 13 and 14. 
and its data sharing with Cambridge Analytica never happened. Well, what would the cost be to the company? Let's say it was $54 million, which is a huge amount of money, and it's unreasonable for a monitor, except the benefit to Facebook would have been it did not lose $124 billion in market cap when its Cambridge Analytica news came out. Now, who really did benefit from or would have benefited? Would that have been the company? Would it have been investors? Do we know? I, I have never actually seen a clear explanation from the cost-benefit gurus in the Trump administration talking about all this, about who actually does benefit. It is not necessarily going to be the company that it can um, enjoy higher sales growth or something like that. Uh, it Maybe that's part of it, but there are other stakeholders who do get a benefit from having attention to strong internal controls, and they do have a cost, but if the benefit to all of them collectively exceeds the cost specifically for the company, like who's to say that that's not a valid calculus? You know, Jeff Sessions, Donald Trump, I, I don't know. Um, just because they say that it makes sense that you know people will be surprised to, to hear. I don't believe that what Donald Trump thinks makes sense sometimes. And maybe that is just the wrong thing. We have not really had any thorough discussion about cost and benefits like that. So who are we kidding? When we talk about cost benefits, we're going to really focus in on the costs. Do they seem like a lot? Then let's not do it. But we don't really have um, too much discussion of what are the upside benefits, how do they manifest, who do they manifest to, and whether those benefits are valid part of the calculation or not. You know, whole conversations there that don't often happen, and they should. Well, and, and can I just reemphasize your last Three words, and they should. I think that's they that's should. really the prescient point. We don't have those conversations, and we don't even think about those. So, uh, absolutely. Well, Matt, this has really been a fascinating exploration. Uh, there's uh, quite a bit more uh, to this memo that we haven't. We if we touched on it, we didn't go into it in any detail. You, you mentioned the. Uh, uh, lack of, uh, or the speech rather, uh, that they would not renew the compliance council. We haven't even touched on the requirements or the selection process for the monitorship, the criteria that they'll look for in monitors, or the internal DOJ review. We may or may not do those on a later date. But for the compliance practitioner, I hope you will read this. I hope you will uh, study it. You may have a different uh, uh, take than uh, either Matt or I, uh, but I hope that uh, you will uh, use this if you find yourself in this situation and, frankly, can take some comfort that as bad as things may be, uh, this to me lays you a roadmap to avoid a monitor going forward. Any final thoughts from you, Matt? Uh, just that we've got an awful lot more we can talk about here, and I'm, I'm sure we will in, in due course. Thank you. Bye. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Matt and I will both be at the SCCE 2018 Compliance and Ethics Institute, which will be held in Las Vegas next week. Please stop by and say hello and ask us any of the questions you've been saving up for us. If you want to email Matt, you can reach him at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Hope you'll join us again next week where Matt and I take another deep dive, literally going into the compliance weeds to take a look at a topic. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.